So what we're going to look at today is a controversial topic. Do mergers and acquisitions, massive deals like the proposed Sainsbury and Asda merger, do they create value for society or do they just make investment bankers and chief executives richer? And to answer this question, I'd like to start by going through an example. I'd like to take us back 195 years, all the way back to 1824, where an iconic British company was founded, and that British company is still around today. And that company is Cadbury, an iconic British brand which makes chocolate and confectionery. It was founded by a gentleman called John Cadbury. And John Cadbury was a Quaker, and he founded his business according to Quaker principles, which were that all humans should be treated equally and live together in peace. And that's why he decided to make chocolate. Now today, chocolate might be more controversial, there's concerns about sugar, but back then, the large problem was alcohol. And that was the main reason why many people did not live together in peace. And he thought, by creating chocolate and cocoa and tea and coffee, he could provide an alternative to alcohol, which was very destructive. And this company was enormously successful. 30 years later, in 1854, it obtained a royal warrant to be the supplier of cocoa and chocolate to Queen Victoria. And then afterwards, he chose to pass this company down to his family to ensure that they kept up the Quaker principles that he founded the company with. And so his son, George Cadbury, ended up uh, taking over the company. And he moved the company away from Birmingham, which is where it was first founded, to the outskirts to a village called Bourneville. And why did he do this? Well, he wanted the workers to be able to afford their own home. He wanted them to be able to live away from the city and have fresh air. And so not only did he move to Bourneville, but he also created a village around the city. So it was around the factory. So it wasn't just a place to work, but it was a place to form a community. And he reserved one-tenth of Bourneville for parks and recreation. And as George Cadbury said in his own words, if each man could have his own house, a large garden to cultivate, and healthy surroundings, then I thought there will be for them a better opportunity of a, happily, of a happy family life. That's what he wanted for all of his colleagues. And it wasn't just moved into Bourneville. He also set up works committees so that employees could have a voice in the running of the company. He also set up a pension scheme, which back then was very rare, but it was a way of providing for his colleagues' retirement. And he also ensured that they were able to volunteer and help out within the local community. But then things changed. Ten years ago, in 2009, the topic of today's lecture, there was a takeover bid. And that takeover bid came from Kraft, the giant US food company, which was about cutting costs and going for short-term shareholder value. And what did Kraft offer? Kraft offered in, in August 2009 a price of 745 pence to the shareholders of Cadbury. That was a large premium to the actual stock price. But even so, Cadbury management told their shareholders, don't accept this bid, it's undervaluing the company, 
We have things such as our treatment of workers, our brand, our customer loyalty, which might not be in the stock price, and this would be a short-term thing if you were to accept the deal. And shareholders listened. But then Kraft wouldn't take no for an answer. It came back with a revised bid in January 2010, and that bid was for 840 pence per share, plus a 10 pence share uh, special dividend, so it was valuing uh, Cadbury at nearly £12 billion. It was offering this to the shareholders. And here, this number was just too big for many shareholders to turn down. That was a 50% premium to what Cadbury had been trading at before the craft bid back in, 90, in, in August 2009. And Cadbury management actually did recommend to shareholders that they accept the bid. Maybe they did so reluctantly. Maybe they saw the writing was on the wall. Because another interesting fact was that 31% of the shares of of Cadbury were owned by short-term shareholders, up from just 5% in the last few months. So it seemed that investors had come and bought into this company with no interest in Cadbury's long-term future, but just hoping that they could be taken out and make a quick buck by an increased craft bid. Now, what happened afterwards? Well, clearly, craft shareholders were big winners, right? They got as much as a 50% premium by selling out to craft. However, the title of this lecture series is How Business Can Better Serve Society And society, as I've stressed in every lecture, is more than just shareholders. Now, one of the biggest losers was the following. It was Summerdale. That was another major Cadbury factory that was located in Bristol. And what what Kraft had promised was that if we take over Cadbury, we will make sure that the Summerdale plant does not close down. But just one week later, after announcing after the bid went through, it announced that it would close Summerdale. And this led to the loss of 400 jobs. And also the community relied on this as well, and it just led to this big factory, which was iconic, now being turned into rubble. And this was a huge negative moment for the UK takeovers, and that's what led to some law changes to try to prevent such pillaging of iconic British businesses happening again in the future. So in the 2011, there were changes to the takeover code requiring bidders to state their intentions after the takeover and also allowing staff representatives to give their views to management and also to shareholders on the takeover so they would now have a voice. But there's concerns, well, that might not even go far enough. Maybe we need more rules to stop takeovers like that. One thing we could do is to disenfranchise short-term shareholders So any shareholder who's bought her shares within, say, three or six months of the takeover bid, maybe you're not allowed to vote. How can you vote on the long-term future of a company if you've only just bought your shares? And also there's a concern of, well, maybe we should have a national interest test. It could well be that the government decides whether it's in our national interest for a foreign firm to take over a British company, there's concerns from the industry that it's too easy for foreign firms to buy UK rivals. Now, the case of Cadbury and Craft, and particularly of Summerdale, 
was a very sad story. But there's one thing, well, there's two things, actually, that I've tried to emphasise in every lecture so far. The first is that there are two sides to almost every story. And the second is that we must move beyond one example, even if the example is an important and a high-profile one, but look at broader evidence. Why? Because if we were to pass these laws, they're not just going to affect the bad takeovers, like the closure of, of Summerdale, but other takeovers which might be more positive, and so we'd like to look at what happens in general. And that's the journey that I'm going to take you through over the course of this lecture, and again, just like my other lectures, I'm not going to conclude that everything is okay. I am going to have some perhaps radical reforms for how things can be changed later. But let's start with the first step. There are, almost two, there are two sides to almost every story. And what is the other side of the story? Well, one is that Cadbury had actually announced the closure of the Summerdale plant in 2007. It knew that this factory was just uncompetitive, was not covering its costs, so it was intending to close it had there not been the craft bit. Now, Kraft came in and said, well, one of the things that we'll do if we buy the company is to save Summerdale and stop it from closing. And absolutely, if they, they knew that that was just lies and they deliberately did that, that was something which should not be allowed to happen in the future. What they are claiming is that they had information which they thought would lead to them being allowed to save Summerdale. But afterwards, after completing the deal, they found that the information was actually much worse than they thought, and so that's why they did their U-turn. Now, I'm not here, I don't know what the information they had, I'm not here to evaluate this, so I'm not going to dwell on this point. Instead, what I'm going to do is to talk about Bourneville, because there we can see what actually happened afterwards, and that's something where there's more facts. So it wasn't just Summerdale, which was having difficulties. Bourneville was also having difficulties. The iconic factory in the garden, which George Cadbury had started in the 1800s. But the writing seemed to be on the wall for Bourneville as well. The headcount had fallen from 2,000 to 1,000, a 50% reduction in just two years. And the operating costs of Bourneville were three times as high as German companies within the chocolate industry. It seemed there was no way that this could survive. Perhaps that might have to be shut down as well, and maybe it would have been shut down had it not been for the Kraft takeover. But what happened in the aftermath? Well, Kraft um, actually demerged. It split off one of its businesses, the food business, into uh, a company called Mondelez, which now took Gadby with it. And in 2017, many years later, right, a long-term strategy, it completed a £75 million modernisation of the Bourneville factory, which means it's still alive and flourishing today. And perhaps you could say it's more than flourishing. Because as part of this modernisation, it created an £18 million global research operation, which means that any Cadbury product anywhere in the world once started its life within Bourneville in that research operation. Now, that clearly is good for, 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 for Cadbury, it's, it's profitable, but we care about society. But it does seem that some of the share of this larger pie did go to workers. Indeed, the Unite Pay Union says um, there was a pay rise and it praised it. It said that its pay rise set the benchmark within the food, drink and agricultural industries for other employers to follow. 
And they also increased maternity pay from four months to six to nine months. Again, consistent with the Cadbury principles that what mattered was family life for the colleagues and, and the employees. I think this goes to also another broader point that I've tried to stress in my lecture series so far. We often look at errors of commission. These are actual acts that companies did which are bad. Absolutely, if Cadbury was just claiming that it wouldn't close down Summerdale and then close it down, that is a very serious error of commission. But one thing I've tried to stress is we also must think about errors of omission, things that did not, um, people not taking good actions. Failing to take good actions is one of the worst ways in which you can fail to serve society. And maybe had there not been this takeover, it may well have been there would have been no modernisation of Bourneville. And that would have had to close as well, just because it was, un it was uncompetitive. So even if the, the Cadbury takeover did lead to a very serious error of commission, and this is not to trivialise the 400 people who lost their jobs, on the other hand, it avoided the error of, of omission from just allowing Bourneville to continue, and it saved a number of jobs here. So that's the first point, is that there's two sides to every story, even a story with as tragic consequences as what happened to Summerdale. But also the second theme, which runs through all my lectures, is, well, what happens in general? What happens if I look at large-scale evidence and not just one story? Now, what I'm doing is I'm taking some evidence from a very recent, uh, from, from a recent large-scale, very respected survey paper of takeovers in the US. Now, there's many other surveys out there. They all have pretty similar results to this. And we can also look at it in other countries, which also have consistent results. I'm just taking the US data, even though we are now in the, in the UK, because this is the one which has the greatest data series. And the consistent message that we get when we look at the gains to takeovers, at least for shareholders, is that there are large gains. So target shareholders, these are the shareholders of the company that does get taken over, Cadbury in the last example, they win. On the day the bid is announced, there's a large increase of about 15%. But before the actual announcement, there is a run-up in the stock price why? Because often there's some speculation that a takeover bid would take place. And that run-up on average is 7%. So on average, there's about a 22% gain to target shareholders. So it does seem that 50%, in Cadbury's case, that was a bit anomalous. But still, the gains are there and these are substantial. And let me again stress that shareholders are not necessarily nameless and faceless capitalists, but they are pensioners saving for retirement or it could be a university endowment saving to provide for the university in the future. What about bidder shareholders? Here, it's, a bit, it's pretty mixed. Um, so the gains here are pretty close to zero. They're slightly positive. Um, so that bidders do gain on average, but a little bit. But overall, when we combine the significant gains to the target and the pretty flat gains to the bidder, there's an overall gain of about 18% when we look at the run-up and the announcement. And that's quite sizable, and that suggests that shareholders do gain overall on average. However, what is the theme of this lecture series? Is that we can't just look 
at what the shareholders gain from mergers, we need to look at what happens to wider society. So the big question, I'm going to introduce the same pie charts that I've had in every lecture, is are mergers things that grow the pie? Is it the case that shareholders benefit and also stakeholders, customers, employees, the environment, taxpayers, do they also benefit because the company is now more efficient? Or is it that shareholders gain, shareholders get a higher slice of the pie, but that slice is at the expense of wider society? Why? Because now workers have lost their jobs or maybe um, there's less tax being paid because the merger moves you into a, a different country for, for tax purposes. And so this is what we need to look at systematically with a lot of evidence. And now the evidence in the full gory description is in the transcripts that you'll have, but let me just give you a short summary of what the evidence suggests. And the evidence, just to give you uh, the, the spoiler, does suggest that more of many of the mergers are of this type is that if shareholders are gaining, it's not typically at the expense of other stakeholders. So what are the stakeholders that could lose? If we had mergers like this, who might lose out from companies taking over each other? One obvious source is customers. Let's go back to Sainsbury and Asda, which I mentioned at the start of the talk. Why was that merger blocked? Well, there were concerns that if they were to merge with each other, they would have just too large market power, they'd be able to increase their prices too high, and that would be at the expense of customers. Now, if that is the case, however, if like a Sainsbury and Asda merger was something which increased prices at the expense of customers, who else would benefit? Well, Tesco would also benefit, right? So Tesco's not in the merger, but Tesco would also benefit if indeed market power went up, the industry became more concentrated, and therefore there'd just be higher prices in the industry more generally. But in fact, the systematic evidence suggests that actually rivals do not benefit from mergers. They're either flat or they decline. And that suggests that the merger makes the combined company more efficient and a sharper competitor, perhaps lowering its prices, and therefore driving the existing incumbents into a worse market position. And we can actually look at what happens to the profitability of, of corporate customers. Clearly, we can't look at sort of the profitability of the man or woman who, who buys from, from a supermarket. But there's sometimes companies which supply, say, equipment, which then goes to other companies. And we can look at the stock market reaction to those, cust those customers. And there's positive effects on corporate customers which does suggest that the mergers do create synergies, and these might be through being able to cut some unnecessary costs or to combine innovation activities of the two companies before they existed, or it might be that there's just efficiencies in other ways, such as spillovers from research and development and the like. So it does seem that customers don't lose, and indeed one of the studies which I'm quoting in the transcript says, taken together, looking at what happens with customers and rivals are strongly inconsistent with the idea that the gains from mergers are due to collusion. This instead suggests that the merged company is becoming more efficient. And that probably, and another way of interpreting this, is that does suggest that maybe the mergers authorities, like the one that 
blocked the Sainsbury and Asda merger are doing a good job. Right? Because if they weren't doing a good job, we wouldn't see these results. We'd see customers being worse off. But the fact that they're allowing some mergers through, but blocking the potentially bad ones, like Sainsbury, that does suggest that they are, on average, getting things right. But who else might lose? Well, it's not just customers. It might be suppliers. So the fear here is that if we have a large, massive company, then they've got huge pricing power. They can, um, they can just drop the prices that they're paying for inputs. And there are concerns that this might happen, for example, with agricultural products such as cocoa and bananas, which come from developing countries. So again, what, what people can look at is what happens to suppliers. And on average, again, these are average results. There are some losers for suppliers. Some suppliers don't get retained, but other suppliers get used even more. So what, what this seems to suggest is that what happens is that after a merger, the companies then sort of rethink at a more strategic level which are the good suppliers and which are not the correct, correct ones. And so the good suppliers, they are buying more from them and they're letting go of the bad suppliers. And that's not necessarily a bad thing for society. You'd like to reallocate from the inefficient ones to the efficient ones. And actually, the retained suppliers increase market share. Why? Number one, they're getting the switching effect. But number two, if indeed that the company is more efficient and is able to sell more products because it's more innovative, then it's going to demand more inputs from its suppliers to supply those more greater products. So again, the pie has grown. By virtue of being more innovative, customers are benefiting, but suppliers are selling more to the company in question. But we need to look beyond them. Who else might lose? This is one big thing here, is employees. And while there might be indeed se severe cases, and again, I don't, I, the, the Summerdale case was, was very tragic, 400 people lost their jobs. What the studies seem to find is that wages and employment, if you look on the whole, if you were to average out the potential losses from Somerdale plus the savings from Bourneville, they seem to rise employment and also wages, you do get a higher share of the increased pie. Again, this doesn't happen in every circumstance. And I'm going to get to the bad mergers in due course. What about taxpayers? You might think, well, maybe the merger involves piling a lot of debt and that debt allows you to save taxes because the interest is tax deductible. But the studies find that tax plays a minor role in the savings from, um, from mergers. In fact, in some cases, the amount of tax that you pay to the government goes up. Again, why? Well, if the company is more efficient, selling more products, it's more profitable. And if you're more profitable, you'll be paying more tax to the government. So again, that suggests that the pie is growing. What happens to bondholders? Not just shareholders, but bondholders. There's the story that, well, if you take over another company, you raise a huge amount of debt to, to buy it, and that just gives a risk of bankruptcy. Here, the bidder, there are mixed effects, to be honest, right? So on the one hand, you are taking over, you are taking some debt on, but on the other hand, there's the cost savings and the efficiency gains from the merger. And if we look at the target, Target bondholders, target lenders are happy. So let's say you are a bank and you lent to a small company. It gets taken over. Now you're lending to a much larger company and this is something which is safer to you. 
The final source of potential losers is target shareholders. You might think, well, that's crazy. Why didn't I just show you earlier that target shareholders gain? They gain about 22%. But here's the counter-argument. What I've done is I've calculated the gains compared to the stock price beforehand. But maybe the company was undervalued to begin with. Maybe these people who take over other companies, they go around shopping for companies where the stock market is just way too low. Maybe it was that this company has a great research and development strategy or a great corporate culture and the market is not valuing it. So you're paying too little for it. So even though you're paying, say, a 22% premium, maybe they were trading 30% or 40% below their true value. But again, the evidence doesn't seem to suggest this because there's many cases in which mergers fail. Like Sainsbury Asda, that was blocked by the authorities. Now, what happens to the target company in that case is the price goes all the way back down to where it was when it started. So if it was the case that the company was undervalued to begin with, once that company is now in play and everybody realises it's perhaps worth more because now a large company has tried to bid for it, after the merger is stopped, it will go down, but it shouldn't go all the way back down to where it was to begin with. But the fact that it does go all the way back down does suggest that it wasn't undervalued in this case. And also most mergers are targeted at firms and industries with little research and development. And so this is inconsistent with the idea that there were some great R&D plans and projects which for some reason were not taken into account by the stock price. But again, the evidence I presented, I haven't touched all the bases. Here's another concern, another major concern which we should care about as a society which is that I've only looked at all of the mergers that actually happen. But maybe the cost to society of mergers are much deeper. Maybe these are to the companies that don't get taken over. And why don't they get taken over? Maybe they're doing really short-termist things to avoid being taken over. Here's the concern. Right, so when bidders go around looking for targets to take over, they're going to look for cheap companies which they can acquire at low cost. So you, if you're the CEO of a company, you don't want to be taken over. You must, you must make sure that your company doesn't have too low a stock price. And we know how you can do that from prior lectures. You can cut wages, you can cut research and development. You can just go for short-term fixes to make sure that you're not being taken over. So that's the concern here, right? To avoid being taken over, you take all of these short-termist actions so I can't just look at the mergers that take place and claim that everything's okay. I need to look at all the mergers that didn't take place because companies are doing these short-term actions to defend themselves. But again, there's some really good studies which look at this. So let me actually start with the bottom one here. This was a landmark uh, study which looked at what happens in the US over many years was that different states passed some laws which meant that it was more difficult to take over certain companies. And what they did was like a controlled experiment. But with medicine, to see whether a drug works, you give some patients the drug and others the placebo and you compare the outcomes. 
Similarly, what this study did was it looked at one state where they did pass a law to make takeovers more difficult, and then all the and other states, including neighbouring states, where there was no law change. So treated state, control state. And what they found was after takeover protection was, was passed, then managers just became lazy. They enjoyed the quiet life. They didn't create new plants or get rid of bad old plants. They just coasted. They engaged in errors of, of mission rather than modernising. That led to significantly lower productivity and also profitability. Another study came along a few years later, and it looked at what happens to research and development. And they found that when there's takeover protection, actually research and development also fell. So what that suggests is actually takeovers might encourage research and development. Why? You need to make sure you're good in order to avoid being taken over. So there's often a lot of um, debates as to whether the UK government gives enough, it gives UK firms enough takeover protection. But the best takeover protection is to be a damn good firm. Well, if you're efficient and you're um, doing what you're doing really well, then there's no motive to, to take you over, right? Because there's no improvements that can be made and your existing shareholders don't want to sell the company. And so indeed, if you provide takeover protection then there's less need for companies to be, to be efficient or productive. Why? Because they know that they're going to still survive and enjoy their quiet life. But, as I mentioned at the start, I am not going to conclude that everything is okay. Even though the evidence I've presented so far suggests that when takeovers create value for shareholders, they typically grow the pie rather than splitting the pie differently, there are many takeovers that don't create value for shareholders. And that's what I'm going to look at in the final 15 minutes. Because if I go back to um, my earliest fact, which was that takeovers um, benefit bidders on average, that only happens on average. Because this number is pretty close to zero, what actually happens in 49% of cases mergers destroy value for bidder shareholders. And we need to be really concerned about this as a society. So the mergers that are bad for society are not ones where shareholders gain and society loses. It's where everybody loses because the merger is bad for shareholders and for society. So this is the idea that I've said in every lecture about the pie shrinking or the pie not growing rather than the pie being redistributed differently. And indeed, there was a landmark study finding that in just four years, US acquirers lost $240 billion through doing mergers. Spending all of this money, hiring these expensive investment banking advisors, and this destroyed a lot of value. So what we need to be concerned about as a society is mergers that shrink the pie and hurt everybody. So you might think, well, why do these mergers even happen to begin with? Right, because doesn't a CEO lose if she engages in a bad merger? Sadly, the answer is no. Is that, in fact, CEOs may have personal incentives to do deals, even if they are pretty sure that the deal might be bad. And so this is what I'm talking about when I say there's deliberate reasons why, actually, an acquirer might undertake a bad deal. 
in some cases, thankfully this is not so common now, but it used to be more common, is that you are paid for doing a deal. So Sir Christopher Gent, when Vodafone took over Manusman, he was paid £10 million for just doing the deal. Similarly, when Bill Harrison at Chase took over JP Morgan, he was paid $20 million for just the huge complexity of doing this deal. Huge complexity. Do you know how long it took this deal to negotiate from start to finish? Three years, three weeks. So for three weeks' work, in addition to the huge salary he was already getting, he got a $20 million bonus. And I think there was no justification at all for those practices. In lecture two, I said that sometimes high pay can be justified if it's for creating long-term sustainable value. So if they'd waited for five years and said after five years the merger was a success and workers had more wages and so on, yeah, you can pay something. But here, just to pay immediately upon completion without ever looking and waiting to see whether the merger created value, that is a really bad example of corporate governance and that encourages mergers even if they don't actually create value. Another reason why you might engage in mergers, even if you don't get these completion bonuses, is the fact that I mentioned in the last lecture, lecture five, that CEOs typically get paid more the larger their company is. So if you're creating a larger company, then you know that your pay typically will rise. And not only does your pay rise, but also you get prestige from being in a larger company. Right? It's the CEO of the number one company in the industry who's likely to be invited to speak at the World Economic Forum in Davos or to give the keynote closer at an industry-wide conference. And indeed, we saw in the last lecture the case of Daewoo, where Wu Chun Kim just bought more and more and more companies just to build an empire. And this, again, conceit can be a problem with CEOs in charge of companies. They're just buying, building a large empire, buying more toys from themselves. And indeed, further studies found that bidder returns are closely related to the CEO's stake in the firm. If the CEO has little skin in the game, then actually acquisitions create less value, which kind of makes sense, right? If the CEO doesn't care about the long-term value of her firm because she doesn't have shares, then she's engaging in these bad mergers. And remember from lecture three, we mentioned um, corporate governance. There are things that managers can put in place to hold them unaccountable for shareholders. And when you have unaccountable managers then they can engage in a lot of these bad mergers. And indeed, what we found, what the authors found, was that unaccountable managers, they also create bad mergers with negative outcomes. And so what's the solution to all of this? Well, these are the solutions that we looked at in prior lectures. So number one, ensure that CEOs have a large skin in the game. They hold a large stake in their own company that they cannot sell for many years. So they truly think about the long-term consequences of the merger. That's what we mentioned in lecture two. In lecture three, we talked about superior corporate governance, making sure shareholders have the ability to intervene in the firm and get rid of a manager who might be engaging in lots of empire building. And we also talked about this in lecture four, is that investors need to take this stewardship responsibility seriously and really monitor a company. 
But there's other reasons why CEOs might undertake bad mergers. And I don't want to just paint the picture of CEOs being nefarious and thinking, what's the ways in which I can enrich myself at the expense of society? Sometimes the mergers might be unintentionally bad. And what do I mean by this? Is that CEOs sometimes think maybe this would be a great deal. They truly think that they're going to be able to create some synergies by taking over the company. And they're just overconfident. And that's a natural human phenomenon. What you might think that you're able to turn around a company if you're to take it over, but you end up not being able to. And if that is the case, then the solutions that I mentioned earlier won't actually help. Like giving the, la- the CEO a large stake in her company, she's still going to undertake these unintentionally bad mergers. Why? She doesn't think they're bad. She truly thinks that there are gains by combining her company with another company. She's wrong in retrospect, but she thinks that this is a good deal. So giving her larger stakes won't actually help. So the solution to this is something else that I discussed in lecture three, which is to have true diversity within the boardroom, a diversity of thinking so that there's there's challenges to the CEO's viewpoint. And those challenges can come not only from the boardroom, but also potentially from investors, which is why, as I mentioned, investors having a larger role to play can overcome this idea of tunnel vision that the CEO thinks that she's going to be able to make this merger a success, even though, as I mentioned, 49% of mergers fail. So all of the solutions I've mentioned to these problems, those are echoes of things that I've mentioned in my prior lectures. But now what I want to do is move on from that and highlight one problem, and thus one solution, which is particularly relevant for mergers and acquisitions. And that's the role of investment banks, such as Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse, which advise companies for large fees on how to undertake mergers. Now, these companies could be creating substantial value for society. I used to work at Morgan Stanley for a couple of years and have very positive memories of my time here. So it's not that I'm saying this in order to be negative about the industry. Right? CEOs have limited experience of doing mergers. Maybe they'll only do a couple during their career. So they need good external advice to help them negotiate a deal and figure out what is the good deal and what is the bad deal. And that is the role of an investment bank. So they have the potential to give excellent advice in these deals. But the problem is I believe their incentive structures are completely wrong and completely counterproductive. Why? Investment banks are paid a large success fee if the merger goes ahead. So they're paid a a very small retainer, and then if the deal is announced, they're paid a huge fee upon announcement. Now, it's called a success fee, but success is not the same as announcing a deal. Because it could be that you do a deal, And the deal's really destructive for shareholders. But the way that the fees are structured is that success is equal to announcing an acquisition. And so what this means is that investment banks have incentives to push through bad deals that they know might be bad because they're going to be paid only if a deal is undertaken. And indeed, this is what happens within the investment banking industry, right? If it was that there was a deal which got done in the industry and Morgan Stanley was not on this, 
my boss would be hauled in front of a committee and have to explain why it was that we were not on that deal. It was known as the missed business report. And it might not be as nefarious as that, deliberately going out and, and proposing bad deals, but maybe we're in a situation where there's a bidding war. So I'm making an offer for a target company. Maybe we're offering £10 per share. Now a bidding war starts and the price goes up to 11 12 13 14 At some point, the price is too high. I, as the investment bank, should tell my client to drop out. But I know that I'm not going to be paid my fee if I drop out. Right? So I might just stay in the bidding war, even though the price is now too expensive. And that may well be another reason why there's so many deals that destroy a lot of value. Now, there's clearly the importance of investment bank reputation. A bank which goes around just proposing loads and loads of bad deals, getting paid the fee in the short term, surely they'll be found out because the client would notice that the deals are bad and therefore people would stop losing them. And indeed, as an anecdote, the last thing that I worked on when I was at Morgan Stanley was a deal where we were asked to advise Abbey National, the UK mortgage bank at the time, whether to sell a company, Porterbrook, which is a train leasing company. And we were asked to pitch and explain to Abbey National why Morgan Stanley was the best bank to go with, not Goldman Sachs. But in the pitch, my boss did something utterly bizarre. He said, don't hire Morgan Stanley to do the deal. Actually, don't hire anybody. I don't think now is the right time for you to do this deal because if you were to sell Porterbrook, you're not going to be able to get a high price. So my boss walked away from this potentially large deal. And what happened a couple of years later is that Santander came and made a bid for Abbey National. And Abbey National remembered the honesty of my boss and said, well, we're going to appoint you as the sole bank to advise us on this takeover bid by Santander. So that was a case in which reputation did work. Right, my boss William, he did this honesty, not thinking instrumentally, oh, down the line, I'm going to get a bigger deal later. He did it because he thought it was the right thing to do. His role was to be a trusted advisor, and the trusted advisor at the time was for him to turn down that business, but he did benefit unintentionally later. But the question is, is that just one example, just one anecdote, or does reputation matter in general? And so this is one of the things that I looked at in one of my own papers, which was published um, eight years ago in 2011. And unfortunately, it found a negative story. Is that those cases in which doing something good for your client pays off down the line is actually really rare. So what did we do? In the study, what we found was that the banks that advised on good deals in the past continue to advise on good deals in the future. So let's say I announce lots of deals and on average they create a lot of value for my clients. I would hope that other um, banks, other clients would see this and think, well, I'm an honest person, uh, they'll hire me in the future. But what we found is that even though past performance does predict future performance, doing good deals in the past does mean that you're going to do good deals in the future, When clients come and they think about which banks are we going to hire, they don't look at past performance at all. Instead, what they look at 
They look at market share. They look at how many deals you did in the past, regardless of the quality. And those of you who worked or, uh, work or have worked in investment banking may resonate with this. But when you pitch a deal to a client, at the end of the pitch book, you have a credential section. Why is it that we should hire, you should hire Morgan Stanley to do the deal? And we'll show a league table showing that Morgan Stanley is number one in chemicals, mergers and acquisitions. And Morgan Stanley will always be number one. But why? Because if I ever came up with a t- league table where Morgan Stanley was number two or number three, my boss would say, rerun the numbers. Right? He, he or she would say, um, can you exclude deals which were below 10 million pounds? Or can you change the time period to shift it one year later? And this actually does happen, is that it was so important to show that you were number one by market share that you would twist the data in order to give yourself the highest possible lead table position. And that's indeed what the investment and banking industry evolved, was that market share was always seen to be a measure of quality. So what does this now mean for an investment bank? Well, I have a deal now. I know that it's a bad deal for my client. But I am still going to advise the client to do this bad deal. Number one, I get high fees today. Number two, I get a high market share. So that when I pitch for the business in the future, I can say, look at all of the deals that I've done in the past, including this one. Number three, my performance goes down because the average quality of my deals goes down. But I don't care about that because the evidence shows that nobody's looking at that performance. So this is, I think, really bad for in terms of the investment banking industry's practice. People think, well, what matters is experience, right? And you might say that a bank which has done more deals in the past is more experienced. But in virtually no other walk of life is just volume the measure of quality, right? McDonald's sells more meals than a Michelin-star restaurant, but that's not the measure of quality. On, say, Amazon.com, What they have is average customer review, rather than maybe the number of items that they've sold. And similarly here, let's take a a, a trial lawyer, right? If you are, say, a defence lawyer, you'd like to give a measure of your experience, but you're not just going to talk about all of the cases that you've worked on, you're going to talk about the acquittals. But you're not going to mention the convictions, right? Even though that's going to increase the number of cases that you've tried, you only want to mention the success stories, But in the investment banking industry, people just focus on the numbers without looking at success. So I think the major potential remedy that I have here is to move away from league tables, which are based on market share, which give all of these perverse incentives, and instead move to league tables, which are based on the average shareholder returns to the past deals that have been undertaken. And in fact, that's not too difficult to implement, because ironically... This does happen in another part of investment banking, which is initial public offerings. So another role that investment banks play is that they take companies public, right? Just like Lyft and Uber. And so when a company goes public, what you can do is you can look at the average return after, to the shares after the company is listed. And there are league tables for the average return after a company goes public. And so you can look at on average, which are the investment banks with the highest return after a company is listed. Now, what is bizarre is that in that setting, it's actually not clear that a higher average return is good. 
right? Because you can get a high average return after a company goes public by selling the company at too cheap a price. So you don't actually want it to be too high. Yet, even though returns are ambiguous in that context, there are league tables. So why can't they just have league tables in another context of banking, mergers and acquisitions with huge implications for society and where higher returns are more unambiguously better? Now, there's a couple of other things that I mentioned in terms of policy changes, but I always want to allow time for questions. And I looked at my um, transcript before and I've described this fully in the transcript. So I will just uh, not go through that. And instead, I'll end with a wrap up and also just invite the questions. Is that going forward, if if, if, um, this topic is of interest to you, I've just completed the first book, my first book, which is on the subject of responsible business. It's called, the tentative title is Grow the Pie. How to Create Profit for Investors and Value for Society. That's the working title that might change, but it'll be out by, with um, Cambridge University Press in 2020. And again, as I mentioned, if you, have, if you didn't go to the previous lectures, there are the transcripts for the, for the lectures and the prior um, videos on uh, the Gresham College website. I also typically will post things which are on these topics um, on my Twitter feed or my LinkedIn, other things, cases on which CEOs might be paid a lot for not creating value or mergers that are successful or not. So there are many things. This is, these are ongoing conversations and I will often sort of post things which are related to my lectures uh, on, on these uh, social media sites. And just a little mention of the lecture series that I'm going to be doing next year, 1920. This is going to be a quite different topic. So while, rather than the focus which on this year, which has been on companies. The focus next year will be on individuals and individual skills, and the tentative title is Business Skills for the 21st Century. So the concern here is like in business schools, you learn how to model spreadsheets and you learn um, sort of these these rather uh, traditional topics, but there's more skills that that might be needed in, in this day and age, might such as say public speaking or time management and the like, and therefore, what I want to do in the next lecture series is to have um, some skills base. And this will hopefully be of interest not just to those who are working within business, but those outside. <laughs>